0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about Indigenous uh,
2: constitutional recognition. Those two
0: With Larissa Barrett, It's a fresh view coming on. on ABC Radio.
2: The breadth and the diversity within the sector is largely invisible and it's severely, severely under-resourced. Also what's missing in the sector is the administrative and producing support, which would, in the non-Indigenous sector, is the way that independents secure enough funding to create a work of scale. New research reveals challenges around funding,
1: stereotyping and tokenistic programming in the Indigenous arts sector and Institutional Change, the noise we should be making, fostering diversity
3: and inclusion in the workplace. It's not just about decolonising institutions by putting a lot of people in it, but it's also about indigenising spaces. You know, the work that our community has in knowledge base is really important to still share. It's not either all, it's about trying to work out what the balance is for your life and so that your voice is represented out there on whether it's the media or within institutions so that you feel safe and you're able to have freedom of thought. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Barrent.
1: Over the past decade, there's been a steady increase in audience demand for First Nations dance and cultural performance. The latest Australia Council National Arts Participation Survey released last month found that 32% of Australians aged 15 and over attended First Nations arts or festivals in 2019, up from 26% in 2016. Yet despite positive audience engagement, further research has revealed many Indigenous artists are struggling for funding and fighting against stereotypical audience expectations and tokenistic programming decisions. Marinda Donnelly is the Executive Director of Black Dance, the peak body for Indigenous dance in Australia. Marinda, welcome to Speaking Out.
2: Thanks, Larissa.
1: So why is First Nations performance so important to the Australian arts sector and why do you think we've seen such an increase in audience demand?
2: Well, the expression of First Nations artists really reflects our collective struggle, our lived experiences and the expressions of our future and what it could be, our freedom And the way that artists create work, really, in many cases, is the way that our culture bearers maintain and revitalise our cultural practices. You know, there's nothing more important than that.
1: What do you think draws a non-Indigenous audience to that?
2: I think that non-Indigenous audiences come into performance and storytelling as a way of trying to understand their reality. The 250 years of the colonial narrative is really revealed in some of the storytelling narratives that we see coming out of our performing artists. I think that it offers an opportunity for people to reconcile the cognitive dissonance from the colonial narrative that is not really what we have lived and felt in our bodies and that knowledge is passed on generationally whether we're First Nations or settlers and i think that our storytelling is a way that people can get a glimpse at truth telling which you know we know hasn't really happened in australia
1: as I mentioned, new research from the Australia Council has revealed deep concerns within the sector, including the prevalence of tokenistic programming decisions. From your experience and perspectives, what are some examples of this and what impact does it have on First Nations artists?
2: I remember when we were presented by the research team with a SoundCloud that demonstrated what audience perceptions were of First Nations work and the words that were the biggest were the ones that had the most people attributing that perception and it was words like ochre and red and sacred and lizard and dots, dust. And so while they're all really important elements of some of our expression – what was noticed was that there was also an absence of words that reflected, you know, the joy and the laughter and the humour and the contemporary expression of our identity. And so I think that this idea that First Nations performing arts is really serious and sombre also needed to be, mitigated by a dialogue that was like yes that is what it is but there's also incredible humor and joy and delight in audiences and the way that they engage with First Nations Performing Arts and particularly in the way that if you look at our artists in the way that they make work if they've been in control of the narrative there's always humor
1: There have also been revelations that Indigenous artists are having to self-fund their own projects. And how prevalent is this and what support is available?
2: I think that if I could talk from a black dance perspective, the First Nations independent dance sector is severely under resourced. It's a really large scale sector that's extremely diverse from, you know, an estimated 100,000 cultural dance practitioners all the way through to an estimated over 150 independent contemporary professional choreographers. We've got 40 years of graduates of NASDAQ and 25 or 30 years of graduates from the Aboriginal Centre of Performing Arts with degrees and certificates in dance. And that's not even including when we look at at least 500 community dance groups. There's a number of Indigenous youth dance companies that are emerging. There's a whole cohort of senior Indigenous Dance practitioners who have had company structures for years, we look at someone like Gary Lang, who's been up in the NT for 10 years with Gary Lang NT Dance. So the breadth and the diversity within the sector is largely invisible and it's severely, severely under-resourced. Also what's missing in the sector is the administrative and producing support, which would in the non-Indigenous sector is the way that independents secure enough funding to create a work of scale and to embed into it the production values that presenters are looking for in performing arts centres. And so when we think about the breadth of the First Nations dance sector, the under-resourcing and the combination of not having enough administrative or producing support, I think that's why we end up in a situation where artists are self-funding to make work. They're making work on really, really small amounts of funding and they're seeing their peers all around them um, making works of scale and accessing, you know, commissioning and co-investment models that mean that, The independents are not able to create work that is competitive with their peers in the non-Indigenous sector.
1: How has the formation of Black Dance assisted in strengthening an Indigenous voice within that sector given all those challenges?
2: That's a really good question, Larissa. Marilyn Miller founded our organisation in 2005 through the Creating Pathways conference, which included around 40 independent First Nations dance makers and in 2010, the organisation became incorporated and actually we're turning 10 and celebrating our 10th birthday next week with the premiere of a work that we've produced by Coral Projects and it's premiering in the Brisbane Festival. So, you know, what we actually do at Black Dance is we look at the consultation and the aspirations from the gatherings that we do and the key priorities that come out of the sector and in many ways we're still dealing with one of those key priorities back in 2005 which was how do independent First Nations dance makers get their work to be seen and premiere and tour and 15 years later I think that we're achieving that but It's taken a lot of work and we've had to build a lot of capacity internally at Black Dance to get to the point where we're supporting one company to premiere. And, of course, supporting one company to premiere is not enough. It's never enough when we think about the breadth and the scale of the sector that we have got in First Nations Dance, we need to be supporting 20 companies to be premiering and presenting work and touring. So Carl Projects in many ways has become the pilot for the groundwork that we hope to do in a larger way with more companies over the next four years.
1: There's long been a need for greater self-determination within the arts sector. From your perspective, why is this so important and what impact would it have?
2: We need to have Aboriginal control and autonomy over our affairs because otherwise we're always limited to what the white man thinks that we should have. So I think that if we look back at the original sin of the removal of ancestral remains and cultural property and the way that that's continuing to manifest in the current 21st century through the removal and the appropriation of our intellectual property, that would be one of the areas that would be important to have Aboriginal control and autonomy over. Also, if we look at the way that the performing arts sector works, recently the government announced a $250 million stimulus package for performing arts. Which I guess the feasibility of that actually reaching artists and independent First Nations dance artists was explained through the notion of the trickle down effect, where the $250 billion stimulus package is supposed to stimulate industry, which is then supposed to reach independent artists. Unfortunately, that feasibility relies largely upon white decision makers particularly at a time when our country is taken to the streets, as we always have done, but with uh, renewed visibility during COVID and chanting and shouting that Black Lives Matters, I don't think that it's good enough that the majority of the arts and cultural sector in Australia is led by white decision makers, which impacts whether First Nations independent artists will or will not be programmed.
1: Just finally this evening, there was a recent announcement about your involvement with Brisbane Festival and I was wondering if you could share that great news with us.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to be one of the members of the Black Curatorium that the Brisbane Festival has established. It's a journey that's been a long time in the making. I remember having a conversation when I first moved to Brisbane with Nadine McDonald Dowd who gave me the lowdown, essentially, on the way that some of the institutions and festivals in Brisbane have operated and some of the history. And she talked to me and some others about the way that Brisbane Festival had been operating over a decade ago when she was there as a producer and since then Brisbane Festival has gone through, you know, we could use the word journey, uh, with a number of local traditional owners and historical elders who make up the Indigenous Advisory Group. And just recently with the announcement of Louise Buzina as the new festival director under her leadership and, you know, with the new CEO, Charlie Cush, they have been able to create I guess a model for self-determination that is an aspiration for First Nations leadership to be decision makers within the festival and the elders advisory group have worked with them over a number of years to set up this structure and you know it's a real privilege to joining my peers Alethea Beetson and Troy Casey and Amanda Heyman as part of the Black Curatorium and you know work alongside Jermaine Beasley who's the First Nations producer and essentially report back to that elders group in our own autonomous decision making processes you know it's a really exciting model I think for a major festival and I'm really excited about what the future holds with that kind of aspiration at this stage of the festival.
1: Well, Marinda, thanks so much for joining me on Speaking Out this evening and for sharing all your experiences and insights with us.
2: Thanks, Larissa.
1: Marinda Donnelly is the Executive Director of Black Dance, the peak body for Indigenous dance in Australia.
0: Speaking Out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people on ABC Radio.
1: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Whether it be COVID-19 or the Black Lives Matter movement, recent events both in Australia and overseas have further exposed power imbalances within our society. But with change seeming more likely now than ever, how do we encourage workplaces and institutions to embrace diversity? And what sort of benefits can this bring? Coming up, you'll hear highlights from a recent panel discussion held at the Sydney Opera House titled Institutional Change, The Noise We Should Be Making. Right now, though, some music from Cairns-born soul singer Mikhail Laxton. Here he is with his debut single, Hold On.
0: Something ain't right I got a storm inside (laughs) It must be the moment In my life That it all comes down to you There's something so right When I look in your eyes Must be the moment that i read really- Let me pray
1: That's Mikhail Laxton with Hold On. The song is taken from his upcoming debut album, Real, which is set to be released early next year.
0: You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio.
1: Institutional racism has been a hot topic around the globe for much of this year, highlighted by protests and race relations in the US and here at home. And while recent rallies have raised the need for greater police accountability and justice reform, tonight we pose the question, what more can be done to ensure our workplaces are truly inclusive and culturally safe? The Sydney Opera House recently hosted a panel discussion to examine this issue, as well as the importance of building capacity and changes that need to be made to employment procedures. Joining the conversation were filmmaker and producer Pauline Clegg and Head of Indigenous Employment at the ABC, Philippa McDermott. Let's listen in now and we begin with Pauline Clegg as she reflects on how her life experiences have shaped her work as a filmmaker.
3: So as a Yagel woman, I suppose I'm from northern New South Wales, the mighty Clarence River. But in a lot of ways, I was actually born in Alice Springs because of my mum's work up in Northern Territory. And then as a teenager, moved to Sydney for education purposes. And so I think I've always had really differing views because of the fact that I travel. And I've become a traveller very early in life, both here around our great country as well as internationally. And I think being able to be in the world rather than observing it has been something that's really helped that. But of course... My mum's a part of a matriarchal line of a lot of aunties and, you know, with a couple of uncles peppered in. Um, And so, you know, those strong women have always been a part of cementing who I am. As a filmmaker, I think hearing the stories from around Australia and around the world has been something that's really taught me something. But I was really lucky when I stepped into this industry that we had elders that supported us into the industry. People like Uncle Bob Mazza and Auntie Justine Saunders, Uncle Lester Bostock, you know, Gary Foley, everyone's role when he comes in and out, and Wal Saunders at the Australian Film Commission, and people like Marjorie Anderson at ABC that sort of kind of were there just to help guide us into spaces that hadn't had a lot of Indigenous voices in before.
4: Mm.
1: And what about you, Philippa? Tell us a bit about your background and what's really shaped your worldview.
4: Well, thanks, Larissa. And hi, ladies. It's so exciting to be here today. So I'm a Mulanjali and Waka Waka woman. Mullinjali is my grandfather's country, uh, which is Bow Desert through to Tweed Heads on the north coast of New South Wales. And my grandmother's country is Waka Waka up in um, central Queensland and Obviously, my Aboriginal community and family and country has shaped a lot of my worldview, but also my mother, she was Dutch, and she came out here after the Second World War and met my father, and she had a very interesting, I suppose, introduction to Australia, being a migrant and not really knowing anything about Australia or Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people, and she met my dad and married a man, not really knowing what that meant you know, to be Aboriginal, so she had a really interesting take on um, the world as well. Being Dutch, they're very direct, kind of practical people, and my father was very similar to that, very hard-working. All our families were very hard-working and very practical and solutions-driven, so that really uh, helped me try and be positive and help drive solutions in the things that I do, but also my father was a really empathetic person and loved our people, you know, loved, loved, loved our people. He was so proud of us, you know, and our resilience and the way and our practicality and the way we got through things and get through things. So that's really given me a really positive kind of way to look at our people. And I've seen that resilience in so many ways, you know, for all of my life, but, you know, the last 30 years or so in my working life. And and I think it is actually such a big strength of our communities that, you know, we are so resilient. So, yeah, that's kind of been my take on it. Also, obviously, community and strong women, you know, absolute matriarchs in my family. My grandmother, um, who was 98 when she passed away, and up until two years before that, was still in community theatre and doing things out in community. So, yeah, absolutely agree with you there with the strong matriarchs and women.
1: I think the other thing that you have in common, it goes to something Pauline spoke to, which is when she recognised the generation that's come before, and you both have parents who were really instrumentally at the barricades, breaking down the hurdles that had faced them so that our generation could come through. I guess we all share that experience of having grown up as children of the people who were in the rights movement, and we've I guess, been the ones, the first ones to go into institutions and change them from within. But we did have that experience growing up with these people who were making sure those changes happen, that great generation. So I thought before we talked a little bit more about institutional changes, we should be tackling it now. It might be good to get your reflections on what you've seen since you were both really at the front line from being kids. Particularly, I guess, over the last 30 years, what you've seen, I'll start with you, Pauline, about... some of the real changes we've seen in that time.
3: I'd actually go back another 10 years and say how amazing it is that the Aboriginal Legal Service uh, celebrates its 40th year this year, that the AMS celebrates its 40th anniversary next year, that all of these foundational organisations started themselves out of action for doing better for our people. And so they sort of kind of really were rooted in trying to come up with the solutions that, you know, Philippa was talking about. All of our parents were trying to make sure that the work that was done in policy and stuff or with government was not just a piece of paper that was left in Parliament, but that it was actual action. Uh, and so being a part of watching them as we grew up and being a part of that active place was something that was, I think is really important to remember, that our people still need to have self-determination, that there is still some work that needs to be done in that area and that, for me, the Howard government, I call it our era of complacency, sort of taught us a little bit of non-action in a way because we had to learn how to survive against rules that were placed into the way of communities being able to do what they needed to do to make sure that communities were safe and communities thrived. And so I think I have an issue with reconciliation as a, as, as a part of that era because I didn't see a lot of action within that sort of space. It was a lot more of a sort of smokescreen of work that should have been done a lot more on the grassroots And so I think a lot of us have stayed within the grassroots at times. Uh, You know, I work within institutions, but I very often don't stay within those institutions because I know there's work to be done back out in the community as well. So I think that's where, for me, we're at another purpose, like where we're about to try and see what the change will be and how do we change and affect that future so that there's a lot more action attached to it.
1: Before I ask Philippa that same big picture question, I wonder if we could just get also a snapshot from you. You've worked so much in in the area, particularly of film and television, of what you've seen in terms of those changes. A very important area because it relates to our storytelling and our visibility. What do you think have
3: been some of the fundamental changes we've seen? I think, like most filmmakers, when, we first, when you first get given the tools to have the voice, you do the sort of kind of autobiographical sort of stories, you know, like, and we're now seeing, you know, when we first started, we could count on our hands the amount of filmmakers that were around us 30 years ago. And now when you look at it, you hardly know some of the new ones. It's so amazing. Technology has allowed us to increase the space to engage people in different ways, but also we're allowed to have the freedom of, being able to move into other areas of genres and you know it's not just documentarian work that we're doing anymore it's being able to play within the spectrums of all arms of television we still have a lot of stereotyping to get rid of within media and I think that's something that we're working on all the time and trying to figure out how do we engage the rest of our audience and mainstream audience to change the way in which not just us as filmmakers, but other people as filmmakers see our people on screen. Mm.
1: I also want to get into those details with you too, Philippa, but just to go back to that big picture question of, from your perspective, what have been some of the bigger shifts that you've seen, particularly in institutions over the last... I could say 40. I was being polite and saying 30.
4: <laughs> for all of a similar age. But, you know, over those, those last
1: few decades. Yeah.
4: Well, really, over that period, I mean, I started working in Aboriginal affairs was my first job out of uni. I studied journalism and politics and I worked in Aboriginal affairs. So the change that I've seen literally has actually been enormous. And I think it's hard to explain that to younger people, but initially, and even before that, so that was kind of late eighties and early nineties, but before that, I think through the 60s and the 70s and the changes there, Aboriginal people had a seat at the table then, mm-hmm. you know, like they were literally working with ministers and politicians and they were taking our concerns seriously. And we made all of those amazing changes like the ALS, you know, self-determining ALS, medical service, etc. And then there was that kind of seismic shift after ATSIC and, and the Howard era that really disrupted a lot of that progression. And so you kind of, you think, oh, you know, we, we went backwards. But in some ways, I think it was quiet, the progress we were making. And what took over from that was reconciliation institutionally, I think, and a people's kind of movement. And I really can say that, I was never a great fan of reconciliation in the beginning. I always thought it was something for white people, you know, like what do we have to reconcile? You know, they changed the frame of that and changed the name as well. It wasn't, you know, the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, it's now Reconciliation Australia. And we've actually been on that journey for 30, nearly 30 years. And the changes that I have seen, especially in the media, are enormous. So I was literally talking to a colleague in Canberra who's been in the press gallery for 30 years, and they said when that Marbo decision came down, she was interviewing one politician, he took the mic out of her hand and said, your backyard will be taken by these people... You know, And the front page of every, every newspaper was, it was hysteria across Australia. And that didn't just go for a day. That went for weeks and weeks and months and years. And the kind of racism you know, and stereotyping that the media was betraying then, now, would never happen. You would never see a front page like that now. I mean, you might get the odd kind of local community newspaper or something like that. But to me, you can see the shift that, you know, no media institution or media organisation would ever have a headline like that anymore. So, that's a big change. Unless you can remember what happened then, you know, it was an enormous change. And also, I think, in employment is incredibly um, resilient now. You know, people are finishing high school and, and going to uni. If you look at the Closing the Gap targets, you'd think we hadn't gotten anywhere Like, really, it's so depressing. But the reality of it is I go to graduations and I see corporates waiting to grab these kids and employ them. I can't keep up with them because where I work doesn't necessarily pay as much as these corporates do. So, And that's another huge change. We would never have had, like us, we would never have had those opportunities when we left uni. You know, we had to kind of take a different path. So I can see that change. And I do think reconciliation has had something to do with breaking down a lot of barriers and reconciliation action plans and what have you. So I think that has helped organisations focus and have targets to actually focus on to start breaking down those institutional barriers. I'm not saying we're there yet by any means, but I think it's definitely helped and I've seen a change.
1: Because I'm quite interested in the way that both of you really have been working in areas where you've been agents of change, but in different ways have also sought to build the capacity of other Indigenous people. And so just to pick up on that point around employment, I mean, you you actively work in the employment space now, Philippa, you moved from, although you've kept your hand in, you know, Gadigal and you've kept your hand in Bangarra, so you kind of do both. But I was wondering from your perspective, why has that been such an important strategy for you to
4: go into a workplace and try and, and make change from within in that way? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I never thought I would work in employment, to tell you the truth. It was the last thing I ever thought I would do. And the reason why I ended up in employment is because I was really interested in economic development so I moved out of media and into the economic development area and where I was working at the time did employment and economic development at, you know, the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. And economic development and our people starting their own businesses and getting into business is what really excited me, you know, to break off those shackles of welfare. And I could just see that it would be such an amazing thing for people to do that so I did a bit of both, more economic development than employment, although managed a few employment contracts. But that was on a macro scale with industry, so working with companies like West Farmers, doing contracts with them, getting, you know, three or four hundred people in at a time, so really looking at the bigger picture across various industries. And I'd never worked in an organisation doing employment, like at that kind of micro level, and then I got the job at the ABC and it was weird because I understood media. It kind of worked because I knew, you know, the industry and also, you know, the idea of doing the employment stuff really interested me because... The thing that I love about media is is the truth-telling that we can bring to that and also knowing that we had to get more people and more capacity in the media of our people telling our stories from our own perspective. So it kind of was my dream job in one sense because I could kill two birds with one stone and so that's what's been driving me there is getting more employment there but you know there are barriers in every institution and reasons why they hadn't had that many people there before. So that's kind of what we're working on now, is trying to break down those institutional barriers that have been holding people back. And, you know, there's a myriad of things that you need to do in that space. And it's interesting, but it's hard work. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you, it's going through policies, procedures, it's it's that kind of banal that you have to go through, it's HR practices, it's what have you. But then it, for us in the media, it's also, you know, looking at the images that journalists are using when they're telling stories, stereotyping people or old images or what have you. So, you know, on every level you have to go, you know, through the institution to see where those blockages and barriers are and it's not easy and i can't imagine in another industry like the legal profession or you know the justice system they're not insurmountable but it takes a lot of work and dedicated people to do that
1: mm. Pauline it's hard to find another filmmaker who's probably done as much to train and develop through other indigenous filmmakers as you have you're constantly running a whole range of training programs and encouraging all kinds of people, including myself, to get into filmmaking as a way of telling stories. So in a way, I think you've, you've done a similar thing where in your own right, you've been a, a filmmaker who's been telling stories and, you know, gone into areas like being at the forefront of the setting up of NITV, creating new institutions and new opportunities, but you've really got a focus on capacity building, slightly different to Philippa, but, you know, I think it's in a way a similar goal. Why has that been something that you've
3: been so committed to? Probably because being one of the first producers uh, and being out on your own, I needed other people of like-minded around me. And so I needed to train people. And, you know, when we started Message Stick back at ABC, we said we were going to turn a six-part episode into 40 apps. And so we needed 40 directors around the country. And so we just like thought, let's take it out and let's find the filmmakers and let's train them and let's put the effort behind it. I think I was really lucky that I was trained well at the film school and given the tools enough to be able to dialogue it across to other people. I believe that a lot of our community needs more pathway training as well. And so I spend a lot of time mentoring people for years rather than just doing a one-off training thing. The young kids that I've been training for the last couple of years, I still cook them dinner once a week during COVID and drop it off and give them food and check in and see how they're doing and try and come up with creative ways for them to keep doing work while they're in this strange time. And I think that that's something that's really important to our community because identity is also about being able to have the voice. It's no point not having the tools to be able to have your voice because then you can't engage with the rest of society if you don't feel like you're valued or you're seen on screen. And so at the moment, we're about to work with a couple of really young kids just because I feel like there's that early childhood stuff that needs a little bit of work and I think that's one of the things that even working at NITV I was at the film school just before it and I left the film school because I was like now I need to create the pathway and so I went to NITV to create the pathway of some, you know, filmmaking techniques and some stories that people could do around the country and that's how Our Stories Our Way Every Day started. And I think that's something that's really important for us to do because it's not just about decolonising institutions by putting a lot of people in it, but it's also about indigenising spaces. You know, the work that our community has in knowledge base is really important to still share. It's not either or all. It's about trying to work out what the balance is for your life and so that your voice is represented out there on whether it's the media or within institutions so that you feel safe and you're able to have freedom of thought. You've got to remember we're the first generation that has freedom of thought. You know our parents couldn't go off missions without getting a mission manager to sign off on them leaving their community and so we have an obligation to that back history of colonised people and being able to rise up and give the tools to our younger generation to be empowered. Yeah. Mm.
1: Well, we are talking about institutional change, the noise we should be making. I was wondering, Philippa, (laughs) given all of the places you've tried to push for change, what are some of your reflections on what people can do if they are in positions where they do want to fundamentally change the institutions they're working in?
4: Look, it has to happen at a lot of levels and we can't just do it by ourselves. We need to be able to influence People who have the remit around the areas where we're finding the blockages. So it's actually about why are we doing it? What is this institution going to get and how is it going to make this institution better by us convincing people and influencing people to work with us to break down those barriers and changes? And, you know, around diversity, I think that idea of diversity is fantastic. But one thing I like at the ABC is when I got there, there was a very clear difference between Indigenous and diversity. My area is called Indigenous Employment, and so our team is Indigenous Employment Diversity and Inclusion. Because the staff that were there at the beginning said, we can't be put in the same category as the rest of the diverse cohort because our challenges are so different to people from non-English speaking backgrounds and what have you. So they've made a clear line there and I think that's been one of the successes and I probably encourage any industry (laughs) out there to do the same thing, not just to have Indigenous, you know, in with diversity, actually have a separate stream for that. And I think that's given us also an opportunity to build an understanding of the issues around Indigenous people and what the barriers are. I mean, non-English-speaking people or people, you know, women or what have you, they might come to a place work-ready or job-ready. Our people might not. So we have to put in measures and steps to actually get them to the capacity to be able, able to apply for a job. So, you know, there are all of these other kind of barriers that we are working on and trying to break down. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, I think, is, you know, then influencing the people that matter. And then going through all of those policies and programs and what have you, I mean, it's painstaking work in a lot of ways. But you can actually see then, okay, if this HR policy, for example, is a barrier to somebody getting employed, then we need to change that recruitment process. So something simple like putting a job up for two weeks on SEEK is not going to find you necessarily Indigenous candidates for that job. You have to go the next step. You have to put it in Aboriginal media, the Courier Mail or whatever it's going to be. You have to maybe have it open for a month. So by the time the word gets out there, people pass things on or what have you and spread the word out. So then, you know, you're going to give people more time to put in their application and Blackfellas like leaving things to the last minute and, you know, sometimes and, and that kind of thing. So, so just little simple things like that. And they're you know, slowly breaking down those barriers. But I think the biggest thing for me is culture in any industry or any workplace. And you can have all the plans you like and you can change all the processes and you can have a wrap and you can do this and do that. But if you can't change the culture or the culture of that organisation doesn't change, then it's gonna be a harder slog to see the end result of doing all that other work. And That's kind of what I call the pointy end of inclusion. So you can do all these things to be inclusive and make your workplace a great place, but the culture of where you work is going to be the most important thing. And if it's not a positive, inclusive culture, then people are going to come in, but then they're going to leave. So there's a great saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that is the truth. So I think at the end of the day, it's trying to change the culture because the culture does not keep up with the change of all of those other things. You know, it's a bit of future shock. You know, you get all that part of the puzzle right, changing it, making it an open place to come to. But if the people don't have that mindset that... They want to be inclusive and include you and value your and respect your opinions, value, you know, what you have to say and your difference. If people don't feel like they're progressing in an organisation, then they're going to leave. And all of that kind of stuff is part of the culture.
1: Mm. What are your thoughts on that, Pauline? Because I don't think you've been a in an different insti- institution <laughs> where you haven't tried to really significantly it. Change, it, change it. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons you go in there. So what are, your, what are your reflections?
3: Uh, I think a lot of institutions have an issue about risk aversion, and you can't do change without risk. And so placing Indigenous or diverse people into jobs sometimes is seen as a risk aversion rather than the right thing to do for that organisation and how it will benefit that organisation. So often executives and heads have to have a transparency to us so that we can call BS on them. You know, and sometimes we don't call it. We just do what we do. And then we get the wrap over the knuckles. And But it's helped to change then the structure within the space because then they start to see what the movement and the change is. Because like Philippa said, there's no point doing all this work if it's not a safe place to thrive within those businesses. And so sometimes you need to put people's heads and clash them up against each other and go knock it off you know like this is how we're going to do it and that's why I'm saying for me sometimes it's not just about decolonizing or opening that space but it is about indigenizing those spaces it's about showing them what the richness of having many cultures in a space will do to lift the way in which they thrive themselves and often what we find is that those institutions will either fight back or they open up and they make really big changes you know like currently working at UTS and having them say that one of their key strategies is indigenous as a pillar that they stand on is something that's really impressive they still have to do work i mean we all still have to do the work but it means that we can talk to the executive in very truthful ways and say to them, hang on, that's not the right way for community. And that's why I work in the places that I do, is so that community have the space to be able to do what they need to do. It goes back to self-determination. It goes back to being able to have the freedom to have the job that they need to have For so long, our people haven't had the education and so there's a lot of teaching that needs to be done. They haven't been given the opportunity to travel and so there's that, but there's a lot of knowledge out there in our communities and instead of them being ripped out from them, then power them up, you know? Like, let's power our community up to be in spaces that are helpful for them to thrive. Mm,
4: Actually, that reminds me as well, that I think when you have those conversations, it has to be a culturally safe space to have them. And so often we've gone down, you know, institutions have gone down this path of trying to get people employed there and, and what have you without actually having that scaffolding for people to be able to speak out and tell them what the challenges are and feeling safe enough that they can do that. And the majority of people won't do that in workplaces because they don't feel safe, especially if they're younger as well. I mean, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. You just got into this place, you know, you don't want to do that. And a lot of the time, there is not a safe cultural space for people to be able to do that as well and express their culture. And especially in the work areas that we work in, you have to be able to tell those stories culturally appropriately and not be questioned by people as to what, why you're making those decisions you know I mean obviously to some degree yes but around cultural stuff you have to have a culturally safe space and that's the capacity building of organisations and what I call blackifying a place that is the kind of the next frontier I think is mm. is us trying to build those culturally safe spaces.
1: Given the times we're in, is this an opportunity actually to rewrite the way some of our institutions are working? What are the opportunities? I know it's a big question and we've not got a lot of time, but I'd just be really interested to get a couple of your thoughts about it. And I might start with you, Pauline.
3: Yeah, I think institutions are into risk aversion during COVID. That's the issue. And so it's about how do we power up now to get ready for once COVID... In some shape, changes a little bit so that we can go back into society. But also to understand that as storytellers, we understand nonlinear systems. And so a lot of our community is actually thriving in COVID. And we also know what it feels like to live <laughs> in poverty. We um, have very good tools in terms of champagne existence on beer budgets. And so, you know, there is this element of going, oh, OK, and we're used to being under the sum of government policies. So there is a bit of lessons that could be learnt from Indigenous Australia right now because we've been used to policy shifts every four years and a whole lot of other stuff. So we sort of kind of just got on with the job. I've been my busiest in this last six months, uh, helping community out and, you know, doing training and doing... And I think that's something that is really important is let's power up and get ready for helping institutions to change the way they need to change for the future of the world, really.
4: Well, I've seen through that conversation, Black Lives Matter, a lot of shift, actually, and especially in the media, about the way we tell those stories and who should be telling those stories and the perspectives. And it really has made people think that, you know, definitely made some mistakes along the way, but I think it has actually made people focus on who should be telling those stories and what perspective. So I think that's been really interesting and I think that's been a positive thing for us. And also, I think about innovation in this kind of time of hibernation. Our people have always innovated that we've had to. We haven't had a choice. We've had to be resilient and innovate all the time. And adaptable. And adaptable and flexible. And we have actually been doing that forever. That's why we've been here for 60,000 plus years, because we have innovated and adapted to our environment or whatever the challenge is. And I think you're right, totally. We are doing that now. And we're seeing that through, you know, uh, things that are happening online, conversations that are happening, businesses that are springing up and Pivoting for, for using that word that seems to be the buzzword at the moment, but people are, and the conversations shift, and we are telling the conversation now. So I think it, it's actually been a good thing, and I, and I love this idea of working from home. I think that, for us, is going to be another really fundamental shift because we can be on country And if we get the MBN or whatever, we can be anywhere and do our job. And I think that is going back to communities and being able to work from there is just going to revolutionise so much stuff and we can bring all that capacity back.
3: But also that strength of the motivation of the we. A lot of us talk in the we a lot. We're not in the I. And so even under COVID, I haven't been able to go home. I won't risk it. I've went home once very early while I could And I think for me, it's about also that thing of understanding that there is a community that's here and how do we integrate and help each other out in this space.
1: You've just heard from filmmaker and producer Pauline Clegg. She was joined in conversation by Head of Indigenous Employment at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Philippa McDermott. They were speaking as part of a panel discussion held recently at the Sydney Opera House titled Institutional Change, The Noise We Should Be Making. And a reminder, tonight's recording was an extract from a talk held at the Sydney Opera House. If you wish to hear more conversations like this one, be sure to check out their podcast, Ideas at the House. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.